The first time I heard Billy Graham preach was in Chicago at Soldier Field uh, when I was four years old, which that actually puts me in a, a fairly august group. I am one of only 215 million people who heard Billy Graham preach live during his lifetime. You likely all heard the news this week that Dr. Graham had passed away at the age of 99. L listen to one of his exhortations that he gives in his book that's called Angels. We live in a perpetual battlefield. The wars among the nations on earth are mere pop gun affairs compared to the fierceness of battle in the spiritual unseen world. This invisible spiritual conflict is waged around us incessantly and unremittingly. Where the Lord works, Satan's forces hinder. Where angel beings carry out divine directives, the devil's rage. All this comes about because the powers of darkness press their counterattack to recapture the ground held for the glory of God. We're walking through a new teaching series together that we just called Spiritual Warfare, where we're seeking together to just study what does Scripture actually claim and tell us about this spiritual battle that Dr. Graham speaks of, in, in which it says that we live daily and experience it daily, again, whether we're aware of it or not. And I so realize that when studying the subject of spiritual warfare, it really requires kind of walking a, a narrow road of truth that has a deep ditch on either side. And I've seen people, you likely have as well, in both ditches. On one side, I think, is a ditch of overemphasizing this spiritual battle so that we really kind of start blaming spiritual forces for nearly everything bad that happens in our day. We kind of abandon then most sense of personal responsibility for our own choices and decisions. You know what I mean? So that ditch is on one side. And then on the other side, though, is a ditch, we could say, of just complete skepticism, denial or apathy. And we just kind of completely ignore the spiritual realm. So what life with Jesus starts to be is not much more than just kind of positive behavior modification, self-help techniques, you could say. But despite those kind of potential ditches and misunderstandings, God's word just doesn't hesitate to point us to the reality of a spiritual battle. And, and we can't talk about spiritual warfare as it's described in scripture without at some point talking about the one whom Scripture calls Beelzebub, Lucifer, the, the accuser, the prince of the power of the air, the thief, the father of lies, the one they call the Satan. Now today I want us to look at what God's word actually tells us about the devil. What is Scripture, not just our own ideas, what does Scripture teach us about him? And asking in this, okay, is he a real person, a real being of some kind? Or is he some kind of, kind of literary personification of the struggles that we each kind of battle with internally with our own dark side? 
And, and so we'll look at how we actually, how the enemy actually affects or influences our lives. How does he speak into it? And then finally, how do we overcome in this battle? What are strategies for that? So that's where we're heading in today's teaching, okay? And let's begin by doing this. Let's just simply kind of retrace what Scripture actually says about Satan. And, and this is reality. If you read through all the passages in Scripture that speak about the devil by specific name or title, this is what you find. Just, for example, starting with the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, understand, the devil is often called, in the original Hebrew, ha-satan. Want to say that with me? Ha-satan, or, or ha-satan. And now, in Hebrew, ha just means the, and, and the word Satan means uh, adversary or the opposer. So he is the Satan, the adversary. And understand this, Satan then isn't really a proper name, it's just a title. And it can be used of anyone in scripture. In fact, in Numbers 22, it's actually used of a, an angel of the Lord who comes against Balaam, a false prophet. But that title is also used specifically to describe the devil. And in the Hebrew or the Old Testament scriptures, there are really three main different stories describing the Satan, the opposer, a, a spiritual being at work. So I want to look at these three stories briefly, three passages in the Old Testament. So the first one, if you want to turn there with me, is in 1 Chronicles, not far to the right of Genesis, 1 Chronicles. And, and, and this is a story of when King David orders a census of God's people. But David really wasn't supposed to have a census because it came really out of a prideful place within him. He just wanted to count how many people he ruled so he'd feel better about himself. He also wanted to take the census so he could start demanding taxes, which is definitely of the devil, <laughs> perhaps. Now, the census was something that God had already said to David, I don't want you to do this. But Hasatan puts David up to it. And this is what we read. This is in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1. And as we hear, remember, this is a word of God. And it says there, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan, in essence, leads David to do something that goes against God's pathway for him, right? Now, that's the only time that Hasatan is even mentioned in the context of David. Okay, now, the last time Satan is mentioned in the Old Testament is in the words of the prophet Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, where, this is where Zechariah has a vision of God's throne room in heaven. And there before God, Hasatan makes these accusations against the high priest. And this is what we read. This is Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So God rebukes Satan, demands that he be silent. And, and really what we read here, if we were to go through the whole story here, what we read about Satan is not of him being some powerful enemy here, but really in this story at least, he's a pathetic little figure who's making false claims about the high priest. That's the picture there. 
Okay, now in between 1 Chronicles and Zechariah, we find the second story of Satan in the book of Job. Now this is probably the most notorious moment of Satan in the Old Testament. And this is what we read there. If you remember, Job is a book or a poem that wrestles with the problem of suffering among good people. It attempts to give some kind of explanation for why bad things happen to good people. And at the start of the story, the devil comes into God's presence, and this is what we read. This is in the opening words, Job chapter one and verse seven. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And then if you remember the story, Satan says to God, you know, the only reason that this man Job is faithful to you is because you're so nice to him. His life is going so well. I mean, if anything bad ever happened to Job, he'd curse you like everybody else. He'd go astray. So God says to Satan, okay, so go ahead, test him. Well, let's see what happens. And then the rest of the book of Job is seeing how Job deals with just one calamity after another that befalls him, while being encouraged by most of the people around him, just curse God and die. Okay? So that's pretty much it, really, actually. Those are the three passages in the Old Testament that deal specifically, by specific name or title, with Satan, Hasatan. And I would guess that many of you are thinking right now, wait a second, what about the opening story of Genesis with that serpent tempting Eve? And, and often in church's history, it's spoken of that serpent, okay, it must be Satan, must have been. But know, know this, even really, you could take even the most conservative evangelical scholars, they note that in the original manuscripts, even as you read it in our English translation, that a serpent is described in Genesis 3 as simply an animal in the Garden of Eden. That's how he's described there. And he's described as walking on four legs, and he, and he definitely had the role of a tempter in the story. But then at the end of the story, God causes him to no longer have legs. He slithers around on the ground. So again, in that story, the serpent definitely plays the role of a tempter, but he's never identified there as Satan in that story. And, and there's actually two other passages in the Old Testament that some suggest refer to Satan, even though they don't mention him by name or title. In our time, we j just can't get into them fully here, but if you want to note them, one passage is Isaiah 14, the other is Ezekiel 28. And, and in both passages are very poetic, uh, very kind of vivid ancient stories of that day. And, and the church, again, has often referred to those stories as describing Satan's fall from heaven. But there again, there are a number of reasons why kind of that jump is challenging to make. Because Isaiah 14, it's actually a condemnation of the king of Babylon. Ezekiel 28, 28 it's condemning the king of Tyre. Again, Satan is never specifically mentioned there. Could we say that might be Satan? Well, perhaps, speaking of him, but never specifically mentioned. And, and we'll need to look at that another time, all right? Okay, so that's what we find in the Old Testament. And, and so it's no wonder then uh, that our Jewish friends don't really talk about the devil much. You notice that? Because in Judaism, the devil is really from the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, he's just a minor figure. He's really not discussed that much at all because he just doesn't play the same role in the Old Testament 
that we followers of Christ see in the New Testament. Okay, so what were the changes that came? Well, when we go to the New Testament writings, we know this. Okay, we know that the Gospels begin with the birth of Jesus, and they really move fairly quickly to Jesus' adulthood, the start of his ministry, where he prepares for his public ministry, for one, by being baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And then Jesus goes in the desert, the wilderness, where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. Which again is why this season of Lent we're walking through is 40 days long. Now understand this before we get into the text. Uh, the name used for Satan, the devil, in the New Testament, it's typically either Satanus, and again you can understand that actually comes from the Hebrew term Hasatan, or the other word that's often used of Satan or the devil is Diabolos. And, and, and diabolos in the Greek, it just means slanderer or, or accuser. It means kind of the deceiver, uh, the opposition. Now, let's understand this. It's interesting that Satan's physical appearance, it's never described in the Old or New Testament. I mean, we're never told that this guy went around in red or that he has horns. Those are just images that have come over time. But what we do find in the New Testament is that the devil picks up his role that he had in the Old Testament. And his role is to lead us astray, to pull us off the path. And I just wanna pause here for a moment because we've talked about this previously. Let's just remind ourselves here. There is a path that God wants to follow, us to follow in this life. And it's a path of knowing and trusting God. It's the path of life through Jesus Christ, right? Now understand that the Greek word that means to stray from the path is the Greek word harmatia. Maybe you've heard that word. It, it can mean to miss a mark or it can mean to stray from the path. And harmatia is typically translated simply by that word sin. So in Scripture, New Testament, sin is just, really, it's strain from the path to which God has called us. And, and then our English word repentance comes from the Greek word that means simply to change the mind or to change one's direction. So the word repentance means to really be headed in one direction and say, I'm shifting, I'm returning or heading to another pathway. Therefore, taking all that, Satan's mission, you could summarize in the New Testament, is to lure you away from the path of Christ. To lure you away. To, to just make you drift. To deceive you. To draw you away from the path God has for you. Okay, so let's look at Jesus. So when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he's tempted there to leave the path God's called him to of obedience. It was a path of the cross, right? Of his death. And instead, how does the enemy tempt him? He tempts him to pursue or turn to the path of wealth or power or acclaim. But praise God, Jesus resists all those. And after that time of temptation, we read in the Gospels that Jesus enters his public ministry. And then repeatedly in his public ministry, we read of Jesus encountering these demons. And he sets people free from the afflictions of those demons. 
And then Jesus' disciples, he sends his disciples out two by two. Remember what he told them to do? Yeah, I want you to preach the word, the good news. I want you to heal the sick and also cast out demons. So when these disciples, when the disciples come back, Jesus is joyful and he says to them, this is in Luke 10, verse 18. He, Jesus said to them, while you were preaching and healing, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, so that in a synopsis is pretty much the picture of Satan in the Gospels and, and then the book of Acts. That's the picture we have kind of distilled down. And, and then we move from that, we move to the epistles, the New Testament letters, where the writers commonly use the language of the hunt. So that's to say, the kind of picture they draw often is that you are the prey and the devil, his forces are hunting you down. They are coming after you to try to pull you from Christ's path. And, and that's why we hear these words from the apostle Peter. This is what Peter wrote as we read last week also. 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, this is a role the devil plays in the epistles. I mean, he, he's seeking to pull you from the path of Jesus. He, he tries to convince you that evil is good, really, and, and to lead you to miss out on the life that God desires to have for you. Okay, then we go from the epistles, we go to the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And Revelation portrays the devil as with these different images of, of the dragon, a beast, an old serpent who, who's making war against the people of God. So there's this dramatic picture there of the, of the war between the saints. That's the kind of men and women of faith who are seeking to walk the path of faith and, and those who are adversaries of the faithful who want to destroy us who are, and the work of the gospel. That's all of scripture in like 12 minutes, something like that. It's pretty good, isn't it? So in a nutshell, that's how the Bible talks about and describes the devil. So a, a question that many ask today that modern people tend to ask is this. Okay, so is this devil described here actually real? Or is he really just kind of a personification of the human struggle that we have against sin with evil? Is the devil a kind of real being who's external to us? Or is the devil kind of just that internal inclination that we each have within our hearts to turn away from the path of faith? And I would kind of imagine that among us here, there are different views on this topic. I imagine some of you might feel that the devil is just kind of a personification in scripture. He's, he's something of a metaphor of, of the struggles we face as human beings with evil. And others might be here and might feel like, man, I don't really know. I'm not sure if the devil is real or not. And still others of us here might feel like, no, the devil, according to scripture, is an actual spiritual being outside of us who works to lead us away from God. Some of you have even had perhaps demonic experiences, kind of experiences with dark forces. Perhaps you'd say, boy, I've seen things with my own eyes. I've had kind of deep feelings or, or sense of a dark presence. 
that, and that's partly led you to believe, I know what I've seen and experienced. So what do we say on this? You know, what are we to believe with that? And let me make a couple of observations. You know, I, I think it's possible to interpret many of the references in the Bible of the devil, it, interpret them in a metaphorical sense, as, as the devil being a personification of evil inclinations in our hearts. And I'm saying I think it's possible to do that. And I, I can understand how, how someone might do that. Okay, so is that what Scripture intends? And I'd say it doesn't seem so. Because often in the Gospels, Jesus is described as taking authority over actual spiritual entities. In, in fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus commands an evil spirit to come out of a possessed man. And, and this is what Mark writes. This is how he describes it. This is in Mark chapter 1, Mark 1, and, and, and verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, this man, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And it's not just with Jesus. We read of the disciples experiencing the same battles, like in the book of Acts. This is what we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 7. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And, and then there's this. There's another example in the New Testament that really I, I don't think allows us the option of explaining the enemy only in a metaphorical sense. And, and that's the story in the gospel where Jesus casts a demon out of a man who's living among the tombs. This is a story, it's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all three tell about it. And, and this is Mark's account of what took place. This is how he describes it. This is in Mark chapter five, verse eight. Jesus was saying to him, to this man in the tombs, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then with that, Jesus cast this legion of demons out of this man into a herd of swine nearby. The swine run down the hillside off the cliff and into the Sea of Galilee. And, and so there in the Gospels, you have something actually happen that's external to the healed person, right? You have some observable physical level when Jesus cast a demon out. And I think this, I think when it comes to that gospel story, I think it's fairly hard to explain that in, in any other way than by saying, okay, this is clearly describing demons as real, actual, spiritual beings of some type. They actually went into these swine. And I do, I do realize that some interpret many of the passages dealing with the devil or demons in this figurative sense. I know they do, I realize that. But personally though, I have a really strong hesitation. A, a check, perhaps. According to scripture, I think, that's against that perspective. And, and I can say this, realize, saying that, I can realize also, I know I have enough dark stuff within me I know I have an, enough unhealthy pull of the flesh that I don't need the enemy's help to make bad choices or, or to drift from the path to which Christ calls us. I, I know that the, the pull of the flesh away from God is within me and within you. 
But this story about the demons named Legion, though, uh, along with just the cumulative weight of the other stories in the New Testament and really the stories in all of Scripture about this warfare it says we're in, all those collectively really prompt me to believe there is something taking place in the spiritual realm that goes far beyond our mere kind of internal, inward human struggles. And then, then added to that, I, I have heard the testimony of so many men and women of faith, both from their writings across history and those I've talked with personally. And, and again, people who are kind of wise, educated, solid, mature, not just wild-eyed, crazy, hysterical, who have testified to very real, profound experiences of the demonic or satanic. And really, I'm just not willing to dismiss kind of the great collective weight of those testimonies as all being misguided. Okay, but wherever you come out in this matter, really, I, I think we can all talk about it in similar ways. We can all agree, I think, that we're in a battle, that we experience, we know the pull to drift away from the path of Christ. I think we all experience a challenge of temptation. I know we do, regardless of what we believe the source of that temptation to be. And we all, I'm pretty sure, could acknowledge we need help in turning from what is darkness and following Christ's way of light. Surely that's what I'd like to focus on in our remaining minutes before we come to the table of communion. Okay, and, and let's first remember this. The, the devil and his forces, they don't have the power to make you do anything. That's beyond their pay grade. The power the forces of darkness do have is really, you could say, the power of suggestion. And we know this, the devil is an excellent salesman, without question. And, and that's why Paul would put it this way. This is what he writes in the book of Ephesians again. This is in Ephesians chapter six and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Some translations say the wiles of the devil. Telling us the devil is scheming. He is cunning. He, he seeks to ensnare, to trap. So let me ask you. Again, whether you see the devil as a personal being of some kind or just a metaphor of the dark that pulls within you. How does the enemy tempt you? What, what does he tend to convince you is really good when it's actually bad? Where are you tempted to feel that something is benign when actually you know it's toxic? And really this question then, so what strategies help us in this battle that we each face? I mean, we talked about this a bit last weekend, but let me just touch on just three strategies that are laid out for us in God's word. It's not complete, but three of them, we notice. And a first strategy, really, one of the primary schemes of the devil is simply this. This is what we read in the Gospel of John. To understand what his schemes look like, John put it this way, or Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of John. John 8, 44. Jesus said, 
The devil does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is what? A liar and the father of lies. The devil is the father of lies. So we can ask this, what then is the primary scheme of the enemy of darkness in your life? We could say this, it's getting you to believe a lie. It's getting you to buy into some lie in your life. And again, that, that lie can be as simple or, and as crippling though as you're not lovable, you're a failure. You need to do what feels best. You can't overcome this. Okay, you know better than God. Or your looks, your finances, your status, whatever. Those are your identity. Or your situation is hopeless. I mean, the, the lies that the enemy wants us to believe, they're really just the exact opposite of the gospel. And, and that's why author Neil Anderson put it this way some time ago. He said, most encounters with the enemy are not ultimately power encounters. They are primarily truth encounters. Okay, meaning what? Well, again, look at what Jesus said about this. This is back in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and that's why it's so important, friends, to know what this word, this gospel, actually declares. I mean, we look at Jesus again in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted by the enemy in the wilderness, his first defense was the word of God. He really, he resisted temptation by applying scripture to the attacks he was going through, to the temptations he was facing. So one strategy we should be aware of in this battle is simply this. Battle lies in your life with the truth from God's word. F find scripture that leads you directly against lies you might be holding on to. Go to, maybe memorize 2 Corinthians 5.17. I am a new creature in Christ. Or if you feel like I can't overcome this, go to 1 John 4.4. 4. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Or other passages you might hold on to and, and make kind of the center point of something you're battling in. Feel like you're unable? Ephesians 2.10. I am God's workmanship. Created in Christ for good's work. That's who you are in Christ. Or Colossians 1.13, God has delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's your identity. Battle the lies in your life with the truth of God's word. Okay, and a second strategy as you walk in spiritual battles is just simply this. Remember that you can resist the enemy. Remember that you can resist the enemy. I mean, the case might be, you need to understand, the enemy is not as powerful as you might think. We know this, Satan is an already defeated opponent, right? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. In contrast to our God, who we worship, the enemy's not omnipresent, he's not everywhere at once, he's not omniscient, he doesn't know all things as our God does. He's not all powerful. So we need to remember this. It is possible to say no to him, to resist him, the temptation that comes to us. There are a number of passages about this in the New Testament. One of them is, is in James' epistle. James write this, writes this in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, 
resists the devil, and what will he do? He'll flee from you. Now, Paul expands on this a bit, again in that passage we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives this picture of how we resist, how we resist the enemy. This is again Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13. Therefore, how do you resist? Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. That's how you withstand, by taking up the armor of God in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So we ask the question, how do I resist? How do I battle this spiritual warfare I'm in? How do I withstand? Paul uses the imagery of a Roman warrior, his armor. Just to give you a picture in your mind of what it looks like again. And Paul says, put on the armor. There's the helmet, there's then the breastplate, there's the shield you gotta have, there's the sword, there's the belt. And he says, arm yourself in this way so that you may be able to withstand. You can stand firm as you do this. And, and let me tell you this, this armor is important enough, friends, that I don't wanna just cover it in a couple of minutes here. This May, we're gonna go through a teaching series, we're just calling it the armor of God. We're gonna go through every element of this and how we live this out. But, but let me just note this today. This armor of God, as you look at it, it's pretty basic stuff, right? It is the things, it's our salvation we hold on to. It is it truth, it is faith, it's righteousness that we have in Christ. It is the gospel, God's word we hold on to. It's prayer we lift up. All of those things enable us to resist the devil. Okay, then a third, a final strategy. And it's acknowledging this. There are times in life when whether it's due to weariness or discouragement, illness, or other debilitations, when it can become even more difficult to resist the devil, even maybe when you're really trying to make use of the full armor of God. And so we also need to remember this. Friends, we need support from one another. We need support from one another. I mean, sometimes, Tragically, it, it seems like the body of Christ, the church, can be the last place we feel like we want to be honest. Tragically. I mean, maybe it's we're scared to be honest about things. But in this, we need to be able to be honest and say, okay, I'm struggling with this. I, I don't know what to do. I, I need help. And I would guess some of you in the room right now, you are stuck right now. You're in a place that's dark and, and you really can't figure the way out of it. And it might be from pride, maybe it's from bitterness, maybe it's lust, maybe it's an area you've messed up in your life, maybe it's an addiction or whatever. And it's time to be able to say, I need help. Okay, and so where do you get help? I mean, you might talk to your friends. Look to those who care for you and, and love you. Or if you might talk to one of our pastors. Or perhaps if, if you want, we can help connect you with a Christian counselor if that would be of help. Now, the enemy will try to convince you in this. Okay, you're too far gone. But again, we come to God's word, right? And, and God's word would say, you are never too far gone. Jesus still breaks the power of canceled sin. He still sets the prisoner free, amen? So in light of that reality, in light of the reality that the one who is within us through faith in Christ is far greater than one who is in this world, 
we come now to this table to really physically receive from Christ in this way. Remembering what he did at that supper, breaking the bread. And we'll receive this together. And then likewise, just as he lifted up a cup, we'll receive from the cup together, reminding us of the blood of Christ poured out. And be encouraged in this. We do remember rightly, appropriately, fittingly what he's done for us. But we come to this table, friends, because in it, by God's grace, spiritually, we're fed by him. We receive from him the God of the great kingdom. Amen? Let me pray and then we'll come. So, Father, we come now, having reflected a lot on the spiritual battle we're in and the enemies we face, we thank you for the hope you've given us. And we come now to this table praying you would strengthen us, feed us, encourage us in this. And we come in faith together, praising you for what you've given to us. And all God's people again say, amen.